can you remember your first drink? Yes. I was 16 years old. Uh, I was a junior leader in the army. I'd just joined. It was my very first day in training. I was taken after a day's uh, learning how to bull my boots and press my trousers. I was taken down to the NAFI, which is the Navy Army Air Force Institute's club in most barracks around the UK. And uh, I was given a razor at 16 and told to shave because that's what the men do. And then they started to bring out beer uh, on trays to the tables where we were actually uh, sitting in a group that evening. Now, I will just say here and now, up to that particular point, when I joined the army at the age of 16, um, alcohol had not had had not played a part in my life at all. Uh, no one is an alcoholic in my family. There was no heavy drinkers. Um, I hadn't had a drink up to that in any way. I mean, except when I was a kid, I used to take sips of things at weddings and funerals and social dues, you know, just out of curiosity. But it was the first time um, that I actually took a drink that night. Um, and when I joined the army, there was a lot of people who joined the army to avoid going to prison and various other things. Uh, so it, th there was, a, you know, there were some very dodgy characters, so to speak, without any disrespect while I was there. And my first drink, basically, um, there was no explosion or anything happening. I just began to feel as I drank each pint as it was given to me. I began to feel more part of the crowd, the fear that I had during and the, you know, the anticipation and trepidation that I had during the course of the day and the nerves and everything else just started to, to go away. And, and that really was my first drink, except halfway through the evening, um, the red line appeared. Um, and I don't remember anything else except waking up the next morning outside my barrack block in a bed, having wet it, messed it, been sick in it, and I had my eyes were out on stalks and my steam coming out of my ears, and there was a regimental sergeant major pointing a stick at my nose and telling me I really shouldn't be there. That was the very first drink I ever got and had, and immediately I got drunk and got into trouble. And I, and I could really stop my story there because that was the story of my drinking life. I mean, when I share in meetings, I have three phases to my life, my childhood and formative years, which were not including drink at all. And then the second phase is my drinking. Um, and the third phase is my recovery since coming into AA. Um, so that was my first drink. Um, and do you want me to carry on and explain what happened after that? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll chat about it because I, I interject now and again. Um, just, just to steer things, if you will. So, having had okay, that, well, sorry, go on. No, no, no. You carry on. Again. Okay, there's a slight delay on the line, so I apologise if I spoke over you. Then it's just there's a we're being Skype, as you know. There's a little delay. So, um, mm. so with that experience under your belt, obviously your first drink ended up a little bit messy. Did you continue to drink, or you know, did did you shy away from it? No, I continued to drink straight away. Um, at 16 years old, you know, you're, you're actually uh, quite um, gullible in a way. And you tend to, I started to drink immediately. I mean, to be, to be quite honest with you, I spent 10 years in the army. I was a drill and weapon training instructor. I used to function in my job. Uh, I didn't drink every day. I didn't drink every week. There were long periods of time in the forces when I couldn't drink because of various exercises and all sorts of other things. I did five tours in Northern Ireland and saw some of the most horrific things. But formulating my life in alcohol right from the very start, that very first drink, my life in general started to revolve around the bottle. And I can honestly say, looking back over my drinking life, I became uh, an alcoholic very quickly and right from the start. I used to, I used to drink with people who drank like me. I used to drink regularly, um, and my character and my personality during a ten-year 
stint in the army um, was just formulated by alcohol. And my life, as I say, used to revolve around the bottle. So everywhere I was, everything I was doing, there was alcohol at some stage playing a part in my life. And nine times out of 10, whenever I drank, I got drunk, I got into trouble. And as my alcoholism grew and progressed, so the trouble I got into um, increased. And as a, a, a normal individual would, you know, I ended up meeting my, I mean, all this stuff that happened in my life in the army was quite peculiar, really, because it wasn't the norm as people know it. I, I met my wife, who was a nurse in the army and uh, in Folkestone, and a week after I met her, we got engaged. Six weeks after I got engaged, um, we got married. And, you know, it was just crazy. It was just crazy. I was drunk when I, when I got down on my knee and asked her to marry me. Uh, I, was, I went away on exercise and then came back. She was organizing the marriage. I was drunk when I got married. I was drunk on the wedding evening and night. Um, I, w I was just consistently drinking uh, in, and in some stage of alcoholic mess is the best way to put it. And, and it continued like that. You know, I, I, I was um, your, I used to epitomize what alcoholism is all about. And, and I was a horrible drunk. I was verbally violent to my first wife, who I married, as I say, in the army. Uh, we had a daughter uh, within that marriage, within my time in the army. Um, and, and everything in my normal life, I got posted abroad. I went to some of the most amazing places in the world, uh, Singapore and Hong Kong and, and places like that, uh, the Caribbean. Uh, and I never, ever saw those places. I never went out with the guys on sightseeing tours. I never did anything normal. I only ever saw barroom ceilings and gutters because that's usually where I ended up. Um, and I was pulled out of lots of things that happened to me in the army by my colleagues because that's the way it used to be. They would pull you out of a scrape or pull you out of trouble. Um, you know, if I was late getting up in the morning to get on parade and things like that, they would all get me out of bed and, and you know, it was ridiculous when you think about it, but they used to have all my clothes prepared being a sergeant and in charge of a platoon, they would look after me because I was the platoon sergeant. I'd been on the drink the night before, so they were trying to help me to make sure that people didn't see that that happened and, and, and regularly uh, pulled out of those scrapes, including the five tours I did in Northern Ireland. You know, I did a tour right at the very beginning in Londonderry. I did two in Belfast and two in Armagh. Um, and I was there in 1974 when the Turks invaded Cyprus. And so I did see some form of action. But in particular, uh, Northern Ireland was horrific. Uh, the things I saw and the things that I, the people used to pull out of scrapes and, and, and death and destruction. That's what it was. But at night, I used to be involved in the barracks because we couldn't get out unless I was going out on duty. And then we couldn't drink. But I was always at the bar in, in the barracks drinking and, uh, and getting drunk on a regular basis. So that was the pattern of my army service. And yet I managed to function. And at the end of my army service, when I was leaving, people were saying to me, you know, your drinking's causing us a problem and it's causing you a problem. You need to do something about it. They weren't trying to suggest AA or another organization or anything else because the army used to sweep it under the carpet. They, they didn't want to know. Um, and regularly, I used to wet the bed in the army because I was drinking and got drunk and all that sort of thing. And I was having to exchange. And they used to charge you in the army uh, for causing self-inflicted harm. Uh, and that's what they used to call wetting the bed in those days. Um, but you see, my mnemonic, Gary, in my drinking, especially in the early stages as well, was if you don't like what I'm doing, you can F off as far as I'm concerned, mm -hmm. because that's why my mnemonic was. I didn't care what I was doing. I had no recourse inside or any responsibility for what I did when I was drinking. I may well have been, you know, 
the lion when I was drinking and I was out with people and that. But when I wasn't drinking and people were telling me about what had happened and the blackouts and everything else, I was just a mouse and I was trying to hide away from the stuff that had happened. And especially in Northern Ireland when I was seeing all the stuff. Because I was drinking, that used to suppress all the feelings um, and I took no notice of what I used to see. And when I left the army, um, I have a certificate, as I say, from, from the forces, especially in you know that time in the army, where it says I was an honourable, trustworthy, sober member of that particular unit, which was complete and utter tosh, because I wasn't. I was completely the opposite. And there were many, many things in that 10-year period that I did in the army that I'm not proud of. Uh, you know, I fortunately... I have memories of the times when I wasn't drinking uh, that I can I can look back on as an experience only and nothing else. And when I came out of the army, I bought myself out simply because they told us we were going back to Northern Ireland for two years. And I made that excuse as a senior NCO to come out, go somewhere different, where the grass is greener on the other side, where I can be with other people, get rid of all the baggage that I'd taken on in the army. I got rid of my wife and my daughter, who was about three years old then. And um, it was just horrendous. You know, we split up and she took my daughter off with her. Um, and then I joined the police force uh, as a, a resettlement training course when I'd left the army and brought myself out. Uh, I went to Chelmsford Police College, signed the entrance exam and ended up joining the police force in Nottingham. Um, and I stayed in the police force there single for, for nearly five years. And, uh, uh, you know, I did two years on the beat, a year on traffic, which is relevant later on. And that I was in the vice squad for the last time, period of time that I was in, I was in the police force. I, but the, the nothing changed. I became... Well, well I'm interested, mate. I'll just I'll stop you there. I'm quite interested that a lot of your life, your career has revolved around service, serving the public as, as a soldier and as a policeman. Yep. Why, why did you join the Army? Was it something you always wanted to do? It was very... Well, I'll tell you very quickly what happened. When we moved down from Yorkshire, because that's where I was born in Huddersfield, and I moved down to uh, to, to to London, and basically a year after we... Uh, we got down there. My father died. He was only 49. He had cancer. So I lost my father. That was the first traumatic thing that happened. I ended up uh, going to work when we got down there to leave school when he died. I ended up as an electrical engineering apprentice and uh, I was wiring a lift up in Streatham in South London. And at the end of it, they told me to get in and try it. I went down to ground floor, came back up again and it stopped. I tried to get out of the lift, basically. And unbeknown to me, they were up in the... Uh, in the the room, the lift room upstairs on the roof, um, and I thought it had broken down, but they began to wind it up, and effectively I got crushed between floors in a lift at the age of 15, and spent the next three months in hospital with fractured skulls and broken legs and arms and that and stitches in my face and everything. I then, um, basically, my mother had always been saying to me, you know, slapping me around the head and telling me I should do, do join the army or do me good. Uh, when I came out of hospital, I didn't want to, to work in engineering again. I wanted to do something different, and I went to work at Dun & Company, the Hatters in Wimbledon, and it was there I met an army recruiting team, um, and they told me if I wanted to join, uh, go down to the Tower of London on Monday and find out. I wanted an escape, Gary. That's what I was looking for. I was looking for an out. Why? I don't know, because drink hadn't played a part in my life then. In alcoholism, the ism bit that we always talk about is that there may well have been in me the ism of alcoholism that was pushing me forward to disappear, go off and do something different. Um, and believe it or believe it not, I, I think if I hadn't have become an alcoholic when joining the army, um, I would have stayed in the army for a long time because, believe it or not, I did enjoy the service that I did, and I did enjoy, um, the, you know, the companionship that I had in there, especially, as I say, when people used to pull me out of trouble. It's horrendous. And um, at the end of the day, um, you know, basically, 
when I came out of the army um, and joined the police force, I, it was exactly the same reason. You know, I, I wanted to be the big I am. I wanted that service position. So I went off and joined the police force. And I'll just tell you, when I joined the police force in 1975 and went to Arnold in Nottingham to the police training college um, and then eventually took the exams there and passed, um, I then went up to Panel Ash in Yorkshire um, in Harrogate to do my three months police training along with the Lincolnshire force and that as well as the Nottinghamshire force. But every Monday we had an exam because she had to revise over the weekend and learn what you'd picked up following week etc etc and every Monday I fail that exam and it's again back to this people wrapping that blanket of the police force around you with all their help every Wednesday I had to sit that exam again and all my colleagues in my section in in the uh, in the police company that I was in um, they started to help me out and, and get me out of that particular spot. So I ended up passing the exam on a Wednesday morning, even though I had to take it again. And that was the type of camaraderie there was. You know, that's the way they used to look. I wasn't the only one, but they realized that I was drinking all week. I wasn't revising and I wasn't do I was clubbing, doing anything that, that normal people would do to get through. And whether or not the the sergeants and the inspectors and the trainers at Panlash knew that I don't know they even gave me the job of being the drill person police officer to to teach if you like the squad that I was in to to how to how to march and how to drill it was ironic um, and yet at night I was drinking getting drunk along with all the other people that was there and uh, and not taking a blind bit of notice of what we were learning. I did the practical stuff because I used to enjoy doing that. But, in, uh, you know, when all the written work I had to do again because I just failed it miserably. But I did live a life in the police force. I did arrest people for drinking and driving and go to the pub that night and drink three times more than them and drive my car back to my house, to my flat. I was single all the time. I was so I was I was out and about. My morals were just out of the out of control. My whole behaviour, personality, my character defects, it was just I was just terrible. Um, and I would go to any lengths to get a drink. Um, and I'll tell you a story which is true uh, that I I had. I, I mean one night. There, there was a place I used to go for a drink, and it was this particular pub and club in Nottingham. I'm not going to mention it or, or say any where it was, but um, I basically rang up. The place was crowded. You couldn't get to the bar. There was about three or four tiers of people trying to get drinks and everything. It was crammed. It was, it was unbelievably full. And I just went across the road to the, the phone box, and I ran the station where I was based in Nottingham and told them that there was um, people selling drugs in the, uh, you know, basically told them that they were selling drugs in there and, and they believed someone had planted a bomb. And within minutes, the whole place was surrounded by police and they cleared the club. And I knew some of the police officers were there and I walked across, just strolled across the road, walked up to some of them, said hello, and they were asking me whether I was in there. I ended up, at the end of all that, when they cleared the place and found nothing, um, I ended up, I was sitting at the bar with a pint in my hand while everybody else came back in. Those are the lengths I used to go to, to try and get a drink before anybody else could. That's just an example of what my behaviour was like and what lengths I would go to to actually do that. Mm -hmm. um, and... I'll, I'll tell I know, you, the, the, and have been on the beat, but you know, I've been had two years on the beat, and then eventually I got into traffic, and and traffic was really, um, it was a difficult thing to do. I, I passed the advanced driving course, and I, you know, the police driving course was just immense. Um, and some mornings I used to, I never drank when I was on duty, but some mornings I used to turn up with quite a hangover. Um, and I used to refrain from doing anything until later on in the morning so I could get my faculties together, even driving and uh, doing the advanced driving course. So, and then the vice squad 
at the end of my police career was just a warrant card to go drinking. I used to go and visit all the pubs and private drinking halls and houses and rooms within Nottingham. Nottingham used to be called the Sin City. And, and when I was on the vice squad, I used to love being able to just go wherever I wanted to go, gather information, do whatever I had to do from a business point of view. But I would always get into a club and I'd end up leaving there having had a drunk, a drink of some sort. And it was usually the last hour before I came off duty so that I wasn't seen by anybody. I never went back to the station. I would just call in and book in and just say, you know, I'll finish now, finish my shift, I'm going home, blah, 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 blah. And I used to drive my car home. Um, so it was just amazing. And some people I tried to arrest and uh, I had to hang on to, you know, by holding onto their arm and that type of thing. Sometimes I just couldn't be bothered and just let them go. Whatever the offence was, and it, unless it was serious, of course, and I will just make that point. But for, for petty stuff, I just used to let them go. Just, I couldn't be bothered. And that was back to that mnemonic I was saying earlier. You know, I just didn't care, and it didn't matter. Um, and the reason I left the police force was purely and simply because of a drunken night out that went wrong. And basically, um, I was booked on a football match doing overtime at Nottingham Forest uh, with a colleague, and we came back to our station in Queen Street, and we changed part uniform, went down the road, gate crashed a party in a factory that was going on that night that we knew of. We both got drunk, thrown out and thrown down the stairs from that place. And when I got down to the bottom of the stairs, the people I'd been on duty with that day and were still on duty arrested me and took me back to my station. And I was put into a cell with the guys I'd rested at a football match that day. You know, it was madness, Gary. I was totally mad. But I wasn't the only one. You do sound, and that's, I'll just pause you there, because you do sound there like a man absolutely legitimately out of control. And and yet, when I'm talking to you, and you're being very honest and giving us the law down, there's a phrase that they use today called imposter syndrome, where people get into a position and kind of can't believe quite that they're there or don't believe that they deserve it. And it strikes me that you talk about your army career. You you served the army with pride. You went and did difficult things like tours of Northern Ireland. You threw your heart and soul into the police. But you seem almost astonished that you got those jobs. And I wonder if there's a bit of that, you know, I, I don't deserve to be here. Was that ever a feeling at the back of your mind? Not as far as the army and police were concerned, no. I knew my drinking was out of control. You're absolutely right, both in the army and the police force. What I was feeling all the time that I was in the army and the police force, because I was getting into these drunken situations and being pulled out of situations, I felt extremely guilty. And I was, I was ashamed of some of the stuff that I used to do. And that's why I said earlier about when you're drinking, and you're doing all these things, you're like the lion, and you'll just get on and do anything. And yet the next day, when you suddenly realize what you've done, and you, you're in, you're coming out of a blackout, or you're coming out of a, a night out on the, when you've been drunk, and you're waking up, and you suddenly you know, realize that you did something the night before. And when you can't remember those things, when you're in blackout, it's frightening. Because you're just waiting for that anticipation of someone tapping you on the shoulder, or on your back, or saying to you, do you remember what you did last night? And then having to get somebody to talk to you in that way and say, this is what you did. And it happened on a regular basis, fortunately, not to the detriment of me being having to do a disciplinary, anything like that. But that particular incident at the end of my police service, I was thrown in front of the chief constable. His name, I, I remember him. Distinctly, it was a wonderful man, Charles McCracken, and he was the chief constable of Nottinghamshire. Um, and he was going to give me a disciplinary, tell me off, slap me wrist, dot my pay a band or whatever they called it in those days. 
But I'd already anticipated what I wanted to do. I wanted to another geographical. I wanted to move away, get out of the trouble I'd been causing myself and other people. And and I just threw my resignation in front of the chief constable and told him to stop his job, as you would a responsible police officer, not me. And I left the police force under that cloud. Um, you know, it's interesting. It was, it's, it's interesting. Before you go on. You yeah. you left the army to get away from the drinking and to be different somewhere else. You wanted to yeah. do the same. You decided to, to end your own, effectively, police career. During your time in the army or as a policeman, did you ever think to yourself, I've got to stop this drinking? Did you ever try to stop drinking? Did it cross your mind? Or did you just plough on regardless? No, never ever want to the alcoholism, Gary, had got so deeply embedded in me and in my soul and in my brain and in my body that alcoholism is the disease that tells you you don't have it. And the reason that is, is because you're in total denial ever that you're doing anything wrong. So you never, ever blame the alcohol or your drinking on anything that happens in your life. So all those situations I got into and all those drunken nights and blackouts and everything else, I used to sweep them under the carpet and they didn't become an issue. And it's more relevant in my days after I leave the police force. So when I left the police force and still had me, if you like, intact, and yes, I had an army career which I ruined, and I had a police force, you know, served in the police force in Nottinghamshire that I ruined as a result of my drinking. It's, it's as simple as that. I still had the experience and all the stuff that I did and everything I went through, but when I was leaving, I just wanted to get away because of my drinking. And I, I went on interviews after and before I was leaving the police force because they didn't let me go straight away because it spent so much money on me. I eventually got a job with Rank Xerox in Nottingham and started to work with them as a salesperson. And, and you know, that's what I joined as a sales representative straight away in those days. And I was very good at what I did. I, I could talk for England, as you can probably tell, but uh, I then went off and did this job um, and I was to meet my second wife on this particular with this company and on this job i went on a course in stockport she was there we met each other she was from scotland and um and i i got involved with her um i mean i used to have a car gary and a company car that used to rattle and it wasn't because there was something wrong with the big ends it was because i had so many bottles in the boot and in the wells of the back seat and everything else because I was always drinking and driving wherever I went. All the appointments I went to, all the interviews I took, I took on board and the way I used to be so good at my job. And I'm not saying this because I'm big headed or anything else. I was very good at what I did so I could do my targets. I could actually work my job uh, three days a week. And for the rest of the time, I'd go off drinking and clubbing and, and be in places and I'd, I'd wake up outside in bushes in fields i you know the things and the places i ended up in my life were unbelievable and the day i went up to scotland to to meet up with the woman who eventually became my second wife jill she i, I drove off to dundee and i had a bottle of whiskey in between my legs while i was driving up to dundee up the motorways and up the a roads and everything else and and i got there um and i'd had a skin fall um, and her, her mother and her father had met me and they didn't like me at all. And uh, they refused to allow her to, she was a lot younger than me, but they refused to allow her to come and live with me, which we eventually did in Scotland. Now, this part of my life changes completely because my drinking changed, my alcoholism changed. I began to become a daily drinker. Uh, I was in the pub every day, uh, every night. Um, and, and she came with me um, and I was verbally and physically abusive to Jill for some six years of my drinking and behavior 
that I, I lived with her in Scotland in the various places we did. And, and I still worked and functioned and managed to do that, but she took the brunt of my alcoholism, my drinking and my character, which was, I, you know, and I was never faithful to anybody, not even my first wife. My morals were shot, everything. But particularly this poor woman um, who I did meet at the end of my drinking, but she put up with me for six years, always thinking that she was going to be able to help me and that I would stop drinking and she'd try somehow. And she even tried to drink with me and become my drinking partner, but it didn't work. And one day we were arguing at home and I just stormed out because uh, I'd had a day off and I was expecting to go somewhere with her and we didn't and she didn't want to because of my behaviour. And I went off to the Wallace Monument in Stirling where we lived in the Bridge of Allen, which is a beautiful place. And I went into the pub in the, uh, in the hotel at the, uh, the Wallace Monument and um, I lived in there all day drinking. And for some strange reason, I was thrown out that night and my car keys were thrown at me. And uh, I don't know what I'd done. I can't remember. I must have got drunk and blacked out and then woke up again. And I must have offended somebody, all the staff. I don't know. I don't know to this day. But I drove my car in February in snow down a steep hill to a roundabout at the bottom of this hill in, uh, near Stirling. Uh, turned right and drove off into the Bridge of Allen where I lived and two cars ended up in a ditch on the left-hand side of the road. A bus hit the wall of Stirling University on the left-hand side and I drove off into the Bridge of Allen, overtook some roadworks and had a head-on collision. Now I woke up in Stirling A&E and I didn't wake up and my alcoholism comes home clear to me. I didn't wake up and ask for a polo me. Uh, I didn't wake up and ask what was wrong and what the hell's going on. I woke up out of that accident and asked my then partner, Jill, if I could have a mint because I didn't want them to smell the alcohol on my breath, not realising they'd just pulled me out of the car, stuck me in an ambulance, off to the Stirling A&E and all the police were around there and everything as well. So, And as I was being wheeled in to be stitched up, a policeman put his head down by my ear and said, I hope you satisfied your bastard, the other guy died. Now, what how, I'm going how to say you... now, mate... Go, yeah, go on. Please, carry on, mate. What I'm going to say now is not the reaction normal people would give. Because I'm an, I was an alcoholic in the throes of tremendously chronic alcoholism. I did what any self-righteous alcoholic did, was try to get out of the situation. So I tried to convince myself that it wasn't me. I'll get a decent solicitor. He must have had a heart attack. I was trying to find all the excuses possible in me to get out of it. I wasn't even arrested. When I came out of the hospital, they came to my, my flat in the Bridge of Allen. Um, and they, they charged me there, not at the police station. It's because I'd just come out of hospital. So they charged me causing death by dangerous driving and they uh, and also being unfit through drinking drugs and uh, so I, I you know they, they they just waited then nothing happened they didn't arrest me and put me in the police cell or anything i ended up waiting nine months to go to court and i was drinking and driving and behaving in exactly the same way not in the slightest bit bothered about what i'd actually done i didn't care Gary. i just didn't and, and, and Mike, at that, at that point, at that point, were you aware, fully aware, that your actions had caused someone else to lose their life? Yes. And with that in mind, how did you square that circle? How did you carry on, like, regardless, if by you will? Drinking. By drinking. By, by suppressing it. By drinking. When I went to court nine months later... I was stood in the dock. His family, he had a wife and two sons and a daughter, and they were stood in front of me. I told this story at a meeting the other night, and one of the women who was in there was an ex-solicitor. Um, she was in the fellowship herself now, but she listened to my story. I was smiling at these people. Pure and utter contempt I had for what I'd done. And I was sent to Bellini Prison 
in Glasgow as a result of that. And my partner, Jill, was waiting for me. And, and every day she used to come to a bridge on the M8. And I could look out of a window at Bellini Prison. I used to wave at her because she used to come and try and see me. And she came to visit me and I was in there. When I got in there, because I was an ex-policeman, I was isolated. When I got in there and put in the cubicles, they were banging on the doors because they knew there was an ex-policeman. And, and all the abuse and the hatred that came across from the police officers, from the prison officers, not so much from some of the, the, uh, the prisoners who I was with at the time, you know, because they committed other things, but there was nobody. And I was, I was put in a cell on my own uh, and, and sort of isolated for a long time. Now, personally, and you're sitting there thinking, you know, surely during the time I was in prison, I would have thought, having committed an act like I did, taking someone else's life as a result of drinking and driving, I would have thought, right, I'm going to stop drinking, I'm going to find a way out. And I didn't, because my alcoholism still had that ism. It still had the denial of the disease that tells us we don't have it. And I was just waiting for the day that I could get out. And when I did leave, I was picked up by Jill outside the prison gates at six o'clock in the morning, taken home. And there was a bottle of whiskey and three bottles of whiskey, actually, on the table when I got in. And she said, you might need one of these. And within an hour, I'd drunk one. And I was out in the back garden in the snow singing I'm free. I was completely mentally insane. Let's, let's, let, I'll just stop you there. I want to clarify just to be clear, how, how long did you get in prison? How long did you serve? Two years. So in two years, you had I the only time. served a year. All right, okay. Well, in a year, yeah, a year is a long time to be. Good behaviour and. Right, fair enough. But a year is still a long time to be sitting in a cell on your own and giving you time to reflect. And even then, you, you were kind of almost looking forward to a drink when you came out. Absolutely. Wow. And I never once, while I was in prison, they used to bring brown ale in at certain occasions. And I used to smoke then. Um, and I didn't take a drink. I didn't buy or take one of these bottles of brown ale or any other uh, ale that they brought in as well. I used to swap my booze, believe it or not, for cigarettes. Because I knew in here that if I took a drink, my life would be over, especially in that place. And I knew that I could, in here, in my heart, wait. I had this capacity to understand, really, that no matter how long I had to wait, I would eventually get a drink. And for whatever reason, that used to keep me going. I never, ever admitted to myself when I was in prison that I was wrong for what I'd done to the guy, that they'd... They'd done it to me. I was completely mad. And as I said to you, you know, I used to sit there and I used to say to myself, I've been in the police, I've been in the army, I can put up with this. I've, I've been through worse things than this. And believe it or believe it not, it was a very lonely, I don't, I don't talk too much about what it was like in prison because lots of people see it on TV anyway. It is not the nicest place in the world to be. You've lost your liberty. You've lost your right to do anything. You've just got to get on and do what you've got to do. And eventually when I came out and drank that beer, uh, sorry, that, that whiskey that my wife had, um, or my partner, sorry, had given me at that time. Um, basically, you know, it didn't stop there either, Gary. You know, I mean, I just continued to behave, be verbally and violently abusive to this woman. And right through... The next few years, even, I continue to get jobs, manage to function, manage to drink, manage to behave in the same way. And then in 1986, at the end of 1986, November, in fact, uh, my world just fell to pieces uh, because my wife decided to go and leave at long last. Thank God. I lost my house. I lost my job. I lost my money. I had two plastic bags of clothes that were thrown at me as I was leaving. 
Um, and I ended up being given the opportunity to come back down to High Wycombe, um, where, well, not back, but to where High Wycombe is, where I'm not far in Buckinghamshire, where I live now, uh, to my sister. My, my sister had been persistently trying to get me help. There was a period of time, especially when I was in prison, Gary, that I, I used to think that nobody in my family knew what was going on. I didn't think they had any idea. But my partner, Jill, unbeknown to me and stupidly as I was in the throes of alcoholism and drink, used to, she used to be telling them what was going on. In fact, my mother, bless her soul, you know, came up to Billini Prison in Glasgow and was offering the uh, prison officers at the gate. £3,000 to get me out. She was, you know, that's the type of pressure and that's the type of sadness, if you like, I put onto my family. And when I came to live with my sister in High Wycombe, I used and abused their hospitality. I stole their money. I stole their drink. I started to try and find jobs in High Wycombe. All the time, my sister was driving me to the pub and telling me, there you go, off, go and have your fix. And she used to try her dandy. She was talking about AA then as well, and I wasn't listening. She was trying to get help. Um, and then I started to faint in heart attacks and overdoses and falling down the stairs. And she was then calling ambulances, you know, embarrassing their their home life. Um, you know, Mike, uh, someone, sorry, I just, just got in there. The picture you're painting, Mike, is quite an unpleasant one in, in the sense that that addiction really had a hold on you and was controlling you and was turning you, turned you into an unpleasant person. But something must have changed. Otherwise, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation now. Well, I think I think that part of my, my life, when I started to do those things at my sister's place, was a cry for help. I didn't know how to turn around and ask somebody for help. I didn't know how to do that. I, did, I couldn't suddenly come out with it and say, oh, for God's sake, somebody help me. I need help. What happened was all these hospital journeys I was having and, you know, I was pulling out drips and going off for jobs and that type of thing. Eventually, I was put in front at the request of my sister. I was put in front of a psychiatrist who asked me all sorts of questions about, you know, um, my life and what I was on and, and you know, all, all the things. And I told him, that I was on everything I could possibly think of, Valium and any drug that came into my head. And then at the end, I just said to him, oh, and there's a possibility I might drink too. And as soon as I said that, he transferred me from Wickham General Hospital to Aylesbury, to Stone Mental Hospital. And I, and I was transferred to that hospital and put into a psychiatric ward. And I stood for two days, didn't move, in total and utter fear that I was going to be there for the rest of my life, looking out of a window, trying to figure out where 23 years of my life had gone. And eventually, having the medicals and finding that nothing was wrong with me physically, heart, liver, kidneys, brain, they all said everything was okay. For whatever reason, I haven't got a clue to this day. And I didn't know for a long time, while I was in there, living with these people who were mentally insane, people running around with sheets on their head and feathers and singing and banging their heads against doors and that type of thing. And, and I felt like one of those people. And then one day, unbeknown to me, I, can't, I couldn't remember for ages that I'd actually phoned AA or the AA number. And a guy from Alcoholics Anonymous came in to the hospital, uh, found out where I was, and he came over and looked me straight in the eye. And he said, Mike, do you think you're an alcoholic? And the one thing that came into my head then, Gary, was thank God somebody had put a name to my madness. Thank God somebody had said, I am an alcoholic, and that's the name of my disease, illness, malady, whatever you want, madness, whatever it was. And he took me to an AA meeting that night in Tain, my very first meeting in January 1987. I hadn't had a drink since I got into that hospital at the beginning of January. And I didn't particularly want one. And I got to the meeting and I was 
and I, there was it was a church hall. It was dingy. It was cold. There were there were lots of people sitting around the tables, big square tables in the uh, in the hall. There was a man giving a chair, as we call it, you know, doing a talk like I'm with you tonight. And his name was Peter the Rug. And the reason they called him Peter the Rug was because he wore a wig. And every time he spoke, the wig moved. And I laughed with him for the first time in a long time. But most importantly of all, people came when I first came into the room and put their arm around me, gave me a piece of cake and a cup of tea and told me to keep coming back and your life will get better. And then I began to listen to the people around the room sharing what Peter had actually talked about. And I began to realize there was a solution. I began to listen to these people telling my story in different sections all the way around the room. I began to realize I didn't and wasn't a piece of shit on the bottom of somebody's shoe, which is what I felt like. I began to realize that there was a way out, that I could actually do something about what was wrong with me, an alcoholic. And that if I came to AA and listened to these people, there's a possibility that I might get sober and I might get well. And I went back to the hospital that night and sat on my bed and made a decision really that changed my life. And that was that I was going to listen to what the people in AA told me. I wasn't going to argue about it. I wasn't going to try and analyze it. I wasn't going to try and work it out. I was just going to do what these people who seemed to have the answer, I was just going to do what they did. And that started me off in the third phase of my life, which is my recovery. And I started to go to meetings. I did 112 meetings in 90 days. For three years, I went to three or four meetings a day not a week, a day. And I continued to get a sponsor. I read the literature. I went through the program with my sponsor. Uh, I, read, I read everything, the concepts, the traditions, the steps, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the Bible of AA. And I started to do service, and I used to clean the ashtrays at the very first meetings I used to go to. Uh, and Throughout my recovery, having worked all this with my sponsor, started to work out how on earth I was going to forgive myself for taking somebody else's life. And my sponsor said to me, when you walked through the doors of AA, Mike, and started in recovery and started to get well, God had already forgiven you because he'd given you a second chance of life. You are here because not because we are a religious organization, we call it higher power, but because it's a spiritual side and he'd given me the opportunity to be forgiven. And I had to learn through the steps what that forgiveness meant. How long did it take you to start forgiving yourself? I mean, what was, once you'd had that conversation, were you able to look at your past differently? It was all part of the program, Gary. So when I started to work the steps, you know, the first step, which is you know, powerless over alcohol and your life had become unmanageable. As each step started to resonate in my life and began to play part of my life, you know, the second step is all about, you know, coming to terms with the, the madness and the insanity of the illness. And the third step is finding a uh, and a higher power, a God of your understanding or a spiritual side and learning how that can help. Four and five is all about telling the story that I've just told you, writing it down and then in step five, learning about it all. And as the, that process went on into step six and seven, which is all about character defects and shortcomings, and then eight and nine, you're making a list of all persons you had harmed. And step nine is making amends to those people. Now, in step nine, it says that you can't you can't make amends to everybody because there are certain situations where you're not able to make amends to somebody because it will cause harm to them and others, i.e. the guy I killed and his family. So what I did, I asked a priest who was in AA if he knew of an amends prayer. And I found out where the guy in Scotland lived and was buried 
and he wrote me this amends book. And I found out where he was. I took it up to the grave of the guy that died, and I stood in front of the grave and read this prayer out to him. Now, I didn't do that to make me feel better. I did that because at some stage during my work in the program, I wanted to give back to him something that I couldn't give, which was an amend. And I said the same thing to his family at the same time. And from there on, I began to feel that, you know, maybe I had been forgiven. Maybe. And people were saying to me, including professionals, that, you know, you you can't go on living with it for the rest of your life. There's got to be a, t a point when you've got to change your life and move forward and do something as penance. And what I did was dedicate my life to AA. In service, I've done everything, at the intergroup, at region, I've been chairman of this committee and chairman of that committee. And I was very fortunate and very proud to be asked to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in York on the board. Unfortunately, because I had a successful business by then, um, or I was a successful businessman, um, I couldn't take the time out that was necessary uh, for me to be part of that board. But I was very honoured and privileged to have been asked to do it. And that's that's how my recovery has gone. You know, it's honesty and humility and putting back into AA what it's given to me on a daily basis and putting back into my life some kind of a, a semblance of sanity and order so I can move forward on a daily basis and live a happy life. I only saw my daughter from that time I was in the army. I didn't see her again until she was 16. And then I didn't see her again after that until she was 22. And I was in five years in the fellowship then. And I made a decision to go and see her. She was a nurse for me you know, in Nottingham. And I went up and, um, and, and saw her and got a relationship. Well, I spoke to her for two hours and we started to get back together, some sort of relationship. I will never be a father to that woman. But I have a, a relationship with her today that is a lot more than I gave her and had her. My first wife, bless her, you know, died at 61 of this disease, funny enough, which I didn't know about. My daughter had become her carer. My daughter now lives in Australia, she's 50 years old, and she has, and I have with her, I have a grandson today who's 19 years old. Um, it, I, I, I could say to you, Gary, now, you know, I've had 34 years in AA, in recovery, having an amazing life and doing some of the most amazing things. After nearly five years in the fellowship, I met a woman who wasn't in AA and wasn't in the fellowship. Um, and after a week of knowing her and, and going out with her, I had to tell her exactly what I've just told you, my story. And she didn't blink an eyelid. There was one thing in my story that she didn't like, and that was when I was 23, I had a vasectomy because my wife said she'd never have sex with me again if I didn't... Uh, if I didn't have this for a second. There was all sorts of things like that, but she, that was the only thing that bothered her. I'd been married to that woman now for 25 years, and we've been together since 1992. Um, so I'm very privileged today. Um, I did make amends to the woman who I lived with, Jill, uh, and she gave me half an hour of my time, her time, to just say sorry to her the way I'd behaved, which was just not enough. But I managed to say what I did to her and hopefully just told her that I just wished her uh, a well life and hoped she had a good life, uh, you know, after, after I'd left. It, it's just been a whole life, as I say, of dedication to Alcoholics Anonymous and to, to myself. You know, I had a good eight years with my mother in the fellowship before she died. My sister, bless her socks, in 2000, um, she got cancer and uh, my daughter got married uh, in Nottingham 
in uh, in 2000 um, and that was on the Saturday and I was invited to the wedding not to give her away I was invited to the wedding um, and on the Sunday morning at five o'clock my brother-in-law rang and told me that my sister had died at 53. Now if there was ever a time that I was going to have a drink in that all that euphoria and sadness over that Saturday and Sunday weekend, that would have been the time it would have happened, but it didn't. I got everybody out of the way. I got someone to look after my niece. My wife took her down back home. I took my daughter and the, I didn't want to be involved in the sadness because they were going off on honeymoon the next day. I worked to get that situation sorted out and go down and be with my brother-in-law to help him grieve over the loss of my sister, his wife. There was many times in recovery that there have been bad times, if you like, uh, but never as bad as when I was drinking. I know what bad times are, Gary. They're not what's happened to me in recovery. I've been fortunate to be able to go out and see my daughter in Australia on a number of occasions. and I've travelled around the world. I've had a good... I've had a wonderful business life, you know, I, I, I've been, I was successful and lots of other things have happened to me in recovery that it is, as, I, as we say in the fellowship, I have a life today beyond my wildest dreams. But sometimes there's always an, a question in my head that I always say to myself, why me? After what I did, why am I still here? Why am I still on the planet? And that poor guy, you know, died as a result of a crash that I had when I was drinking and driving. Um, and I could say, you know, it's not fair. And it, I was the one that caused it. So what right do I have um, to, to, to think anything other than it was my fault? I know what I did. And I know what happened. And the problem is I can't change it. All I can do is live an honest, sober and straightforward recovery today and put back into life to love people, to take care of them, to support them. I have a lot of sponsees today who I look after and take them through the program uh, and give them the benefit of whatever I, it is that I have which is just today is just a serene peace that I have in here at last uh, that's given me the opportunity to be sober for so long. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what, Mike, um, we're coming up to the end of our recording hour here. Yeah. Um, I want to... That, your story, Mike, your when the disease had you in its grip, is as bad as anything I've heard. And yet here we are with 34 years of sobriety under your belt. Mm -hmm. And as you've pointed out, you've had a fantastic um, life in recovery, the life beyond your wildest dreams. That would clearly show anybody that no matter how dark things are and no matter in what position you are, there is hope for people. There will be people who listen to this, who were perhaps in the grip of that disease and perhaps think everything's hopeless and there's nowhere that they can turn and they might as well just carry on drinking because there's nothing for them. What would your message be to anybody listening to this who's perhaps thinking like that? Well, I remember when I first came around and I said to myself one day, I wish I'd have thought about that. Um, someone said to me, if you don't pick a drink up on a daily basis, you can't get drunk and you can't get into trouble. And I used to say, why on earth did I think, not think of that? If you don't think you can stop drinking, believe me, you can. There's only one thing in the 34 years I've been in recovery, I ever guarantee anybody who's new coming into AA. And that is that if you stop drinking and you come to AA and you listen to what the people tell you and do the things that's suggested, 
you will have this life beyond your wildest dreams as I have because that's what happens you might think that you 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 can't be helped or you don't want to stop drinking it is a denial it is as I say the disease that tells you you don't have it so coming to AA and working the program and listening to the people and just sitting your bum on a seat in an AA meeting you know if you stay sober and don't pick a drink up on a daily basis, the only thing I can guarantee is you will have that life and you will on a daily basis get better. Whatever you think your problems are today, they will disappear gradually over the days that you're in recovery and you're not drinking and you're getting better. all the things that happen. And I've seen it so many times in so many people who have just come into AA and who are frightened when they come in, who can't understand what the hell we're talking about. And we don't ask anybody to do anything that they don't want to do. They can just sit there and listen to the people talking about their lives that like I am to you now. And if you do that, as I say, the only thing I can guarantee is you will stay sober. Mike, I don't know if Daniel mentioned to you but we often ask people if there's a song that has particular meaning to them that we can edit into the end of the um, the end of the piece. Did did he ask you to choose a song? Yeah, he did, and I I wrote a couple down. I did actually send them to me. I thought he was going to pass them on to you, Gary. But there was one which was one day at a time, naturally, which I know sometimes for copyright you can't always play. We we can um, we can play anything for the purpose of this. We can play. Anything you like, mate, so it's up to you Well, if you'd like to choose okay, one, because well, I'll ask you to introduce it and, and tell us why, you know, it's it's of particular well, importance to you. One day at a time, the song itself just epitomises um, my life, mm. basically, that from when I came into recovery, um, that's what it's doing. It doesn't matter what's gone on in the past. Um, yes, it does matter, but what I'm trying to say here is that it's it's sort of saying that, you know, one day at a time, you can live a different life and you can be forgiven for your past and you can feel comfort. Um, and, well, shall and we go for that one? Then? Shall, shall we, shall yeah. we go for that one? Let's, let's do that one. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, I'll, yeah. I'll ask you to introduce it. I'll, uh, I will set to you. Okay. So right. I just like to. Uh, oh, wait, I'll, sorry, I'll, I'll just I'll just finish my bit and then ask you to introduce yeah. it if that's all right. And any closing remarks yeah, that you yeah. might want to make. All right. So here we go. Thank you. Yeah. Mike, it's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much for your honesty, your integrity, the way that you've shared your dark moments, but more importantly, the way that you've shared your recovery, your message of hope, which. If nothing else, that should inspire people, you know, to to realise that there are other paths that they can choose. We ask people if there's a, a given song or perhaps a tune that of particular importance to them. Have you chosen one for us? I have, and it's uh, one day at a time because it basically epitomises what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about by staying drunk one day at a time. Uh, sorry, by staying sober one day at a time and having a better life. Mike, thank you so much. It genuinely has been a privilege to speak to you, Matt. It really has. Your story is astonishing. Well, I've lived it, Gary, so I do appreciate what you're saying. And I, I also appreciate, you know, um, how you've just sat there and listened to this old codger waffle on for a while. Oh, but, man, it's, um, it's absolutely just... fascinating because this, my, my the, the reason why I wanted to do things like this in, in the beginning when I spoke to Daniel is that for seven years I lived with an alcoholic and I had that kind of messiah complex where I thought, I can save this girl. And when you talk right. about Jill... And she kind of started mm. drinking with you, doing this. I, I, that really resonates because that with me, it's like, yep, yeah, we can deal with this. I can, I can cheer, I can save her. And I realised it was seven years of my life completely, totally, utterly wasted because yeah. there's nothing you can do for someone, is there? And, and I mean, I, it seems so obvious now 
and it is so obvious and so logical. But when you're in the middle of it, you believe you can save people, you believe you can protect them. I don't know, it's it's the weirdest thing. And hearing people yeah, no. like yourself who've really been through it, really lived it, and who are out the other side and, and you want to spread that message to people is remarkable. As I say, a privilege to speak to you, sir. Where can I get, um, you know, like hear the recording? Is it on uh, AA Podcast? It will be on the podcast. What we're doing, I'm recording them this week, and I think Daniel's intention, because uh, once I've recorded them and trimmed them up and put the music on, you know, things like that, then I'll send them to Daniel. I think he's in then intending to release one a week. I'm just not sure about his schedule on that, but I'm sure as soon as it's released, um, he will get in touch with you. And if you want, Mike, I've got your details now. If you want me to send you a copy uh, separately, I'd be yeah, happy to do good. that, mate. There'd be no yeah. problem at all with that. My, my sponsor would like um, to hear it. And there's a couple of my sponsees who are fairly new in the fellowship as well. I'd, I'd love them to hear it. Right. If you want to text me an email address, Mike, at some point this week, um, I'll pop it in. Obviously, it's too big a file to email but I can send a link where you'd yeah. be able to download it or listen to it or do what you wanted. So um, if that would okay. help. I'll, I'll message you my email address when we finish. That'd be super duper, mate. I'll get it done at some point this week. It won't be tonight or tomorrow, um, but I'll get no, it over it's... to you. And then you can, obviously, you, you've got your own copy then, haven't you? So you can do as you wish. That'd be brilliant. I do appreciate that, Gary. Thank you. No, I appreciate your time, mate. You're a remarkable man. And... I wish you all the best. I know you'll carry on doing what you do because that's who you are now. And uh, thank you so much for your time and your honesty. Brilliant to speak to. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And you, Gary. And thank you for everything you've been doing as well. I appreciate it. Not at all. Take good care of yourself. And you. ta mate.